All right, good morning, church. Well, this is a really big Sabbath for a lot of reasons, um, but specifically with regards to what's happening here at the Kingscliff Church, we are, with some sadness in our hearts, bringing a nearly six-month journey of Bible study to an end. Can you all say, aw? That's how I, I feel that way a little bit. This last uh, week, Jared and I got together, and uh, Daniel spent some time with us as well, but Jared and I were sitting in his uh, luxurious, what amounts to a penthouse suite now, over in uh, Kingscliff. He's definitely upgraded from his last place, where he had to drive up a mountain just to get to his house. Anyway, we were sitting there, and the waves were rolling in, and the breeze was beautiful, and we just sat down for several hours with the intent of reviewing all of our sermons and all of our studies that we've been over in the last six months and trying to distill it down to some major takeaway points. And uh, I think it was a little bit poignant for us. It was a little sadness in our heart as we were sort of, oh yeah, I remember, that was a really good point. Oh yeah, that too. And those sermons are now in the past, but we're bringing it to a, a grand sort of conclusion today we're really excited about. And uh, it, it just felt fitting, rather than just one of us sort of landing the plane in Acts chapter 28, uh, for all three of us to be involved. And so what we've done, and what's going to happen today, is we're going to sort of review and walk through the major points, some of the, the mountain tops that we've experienced as we've been studying the last six months through the book of Acts, and uh, then we'll be done. We're going to make an appeal at the end, so be ready for that. There's no way we can come six months through a study like this and not make some kind of meaningful and substantive appeal to the church. And uh, the next week, we'll be off to the races with our brand new series. We're going to be in the Old Testament for a year. And uh, I've been getting a little bit of feedback. Is that good news or bad news? You excited about that? The feedback I've been getting is really positive, so we'll have hopefully our new banners up by next Sabbath and uh, designed by our own Jamin Binning. They look absolutely beautiful. The series is titled A Blazing Grace, Another Look at the Old Testament. And uh, man, it's going to be a great study. But before we get there, today we're going to talk about the book of Acts. Now one last announcement. This has been a great week, uh, not just because we're landing the plane here in the book of Acts, but because we launched our growth groups this last week. Raise your hand if you attended or let out in a growth group this last week. Oh, I love to see that. We had two amazing growth groups at my house. Somebody asked how the growth groups went. I said, well, the first one went fantastic and the second one was better. So really, things are going good. But I want to let you know, we wouldn't normally uh, allow late registrations, but we have about 150 people registered and they've signed up for about 240 different groups because some people are going to more than one. That's huge. Our goal was to have about 150 to start with, and we're right close to that. But there are still a few groups that could take a few more people. So if you're thinking, man, I wish I would have registered, I wish I would have signed up, there are still catalogs available. They're in the back. I know that my nine weeks to peace group is absolutely capped, but the Thursday night group that I'm leading out in the Galatians group, we could take three or four more people. So... There are some other groups that still have a few spots available. If you're interested, you can come and speak to myself or Pastor Jared uh, after church, and we'll get you registered into one of the groups. And so the growth group pamphlets are out the back. And uh, with that, I'm going to invite Pastors Daniel and Jared to come on up here. And guys, are, are, here's a microphone for you, Daniel. Turn that off if I give you the nod, Dave, if I tell you. <laughs> um, are you guys excited about this, or are you nervous? Or oh, what, what are you thinking? I'm pumped. Yeah, you're always pumped. I'm always Look pumped. Look at you. You're pumped. 
How about you, Jared? How are you feeling? You nervous? Feeling good. I did my final touches in the, the pastor's office just during the song service. So. <laughs> <laughs> so leaving, it, leaving it till the end. Yeah, I'm ready. Uh, yep. Leaving it till the end. So we have been through uh, 27 chapters in Acts. We're going to land today in Acts chapter 28. But before we actually get to Acts 28, we're going to spend time reviewing. How many points did we come up with, Jared? We thought it'd be really good if we could do six. Then we tried seven. Then I think we looked at eight. What did we end up with? Well, we ended up with ten major points. And we went through them. We thought, we can combine these ones, we can combine these ones. But we ended up with ten points, and we thought, we can't reduce it any more than this. Because these are central, um, just fantastic points that the book of Acts has just been telling us over and over and over as we've gone through. So, ten points. Ten points. And particularly for those of you that have been here, for all of the studies or most of the studies, you're going to remember these. These are going to bring back to, oh yeah, I remember that, and I remember that. And uh, so we're going to go right uh, to our first point here, Acts chapter 28. We're going to get there at the end of the presentation. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, if you have your Bibles open, you want to pull them out, turn to the book of Acts. And in many ways, the book of Acts is the, is the fifth gospel, right? We have the gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. These are the stories of Jesus' miracles and healings and the various things that Jesus did while he was incarnate why he was on earth in flesh and blood. But the book of Acts is, you might think of it this way, the post-resurrection gospel, right? You have the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but without the book of Acts, as we've said several times in this series, we would really be lost in the New Testament. We wouldn't know where Paul was or what Peter was doing or the events that shaped the early church. And yet the remarkable thing is, is that popular, or contrary to popular opinion, this is not really a book of the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of Jesus through his spirit in the church. Amen. And without the resurrection, there is no book of acts. Let me just read you that in Acts chapter 1 verse 3. It says, to whom also he presented himself. What's the word there on the screen? How did he present himself? I want you to think about those three words right there for a moment. Jesus is alive. Can the church say amen to that? Amen. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is not only no book of Acts, there's no church. There's no Christian faith. We're not sitting in this building on this day. To, there, if the resurrection is true, it is the singular most important truth in all of the universe. And if the resurrection is not true, then according to the Apostle Paul, we are all meeting here and worshiping here and praying here and being pious here in vain. If Jesus rose literally, historically, and bodily from the dead, if, in fact, Jesus is alive, then there is some really, really good news in the universe, and God has called the church to bring that good news to the world who is not yet aware of the power of those three words. Jesus is alive. Amen. A good friend of mine was an Adventist pastor for a long time. And uh, he was in uh, uh, California in one of the more liberal universities in California, what's called Humboldt State University, which is right in the heart of pot-growing country, right? It's where everybody grows their pot out in the Humboldt forest. And um, his name was Jason. And Jason was attending their Humboldt, uh, Humboldt State University. And uh, he was th there on the university. Every now and then, there was sort of these travel. This pr one particular traveling preacher that would come to the campus, would come to the university, and he would stand in the middle of the campus, right there near the student union, and he would preach. He was just a public preacher. 
And uh, the students would often gather around, particularly in a very liberal, liberal arts university, and they would sort of listen, but with, you know, not interest, just mockery, derision, giving him a hard time, you know, asking him difficult questions. And here this very sincere guy, as I recall his name was Hiram, and he would, he would just stand up with all of the sincerity and all of the urgency that he could muster, and he would preach. He was clearly a fish out of water, right? The kind of preaching that he was giving and, and the environment that he was in are just two very different realities. It was oil and water. It was black and white, right? It was square and circle. And one day, my friend Jason, while he was studying there at Humboldt State University, when he was telling me his testimony, I was asking him, hey, how did you get converted? And he told me this story. One day he was just walking across the campus there at Humboldt State and he noticed that one of the preachers, this particular guy, Hiram, had showed up and they were there, you know, maybe for a few weeks and then they'd disappear, maybe come back the next semester. And, and uh, he noticed that several of the students were standing around and he thought, oh, one of those street preachers must be here. So he wandered over and sure enough, it was this guy, kind of the oafiest of them all, the one that was the least contemporary, the one that didn't really fit in. And Jason walked up. He's an absolutely brilliant person, polymathic in some areas and just a, just a goer. And he's sort of listening in, and, and uh, there's people sort of standing around and just talking and sort of having a, a, a jab every now and then at the, little, at the preacher who was doing his best to arrest the attention of these disinterested and hostile students. And then Jason told me this story. He said, at one point, he said, I don't remember all of the details, but the preacher, this Hiram guy, he said he looked right at me, and he said these three words. Guess what the three words were? Jesus is alive. He just looked at me and he, and he said with, with sincerity and passion and yet with, with a piercing intensity, he looked at me and he just said, Jesus is alive. Well, he said it's not as though there was a flash of lightning from the sky or anything like that, but, but you know, he sort of went his way and the student, the, they dismissed, the group dismissed, and he said he went back to his room and those three words were just wedged in his mind. He couldn't get rid of those, Jesus is alive. Wait a minute, Jesus is alive. He couldn't stop thinking about this idea that if this guy actually lived and was actually killed and actually rose again, if Jesus really was alive, that that would be the single most important thing. It would be more important than anything he was going to learn in university. It was going to be more important than anything he had learned or could ever learn. This simple idea contained in three embryonic, dynamite-filled words, Jesus is alive. And those three words in the book of Acts rocked the world. And beloved, if we're going to rock our own little corner of the world here in Kingscliff, we are going to be, have to be absolutely committed and persuaded to the truth that Jesus is not some idea that's contained in a dusty old book from a thousand or two thousand years ago, but he is the living Christ and Jesus is alive. Amen. That's point number one. Right? Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he starts preaching. And what is he preaching? He's preaching the resurrection. Paul, over and over again, when he's preaching, he, on one occasion he says, I'm standing here because of the resurrection. I want to read you this quotation from Philip Schaff, the great historian. He said, The Christian church rests on the resurrection of its founder. Without this fact, the church could have never been born, or if born, it would have soon died a natural death. The miracle of the resurrection and the existence of, the, of Christianity are so closely connected that they must stand or fall together. So the first point that we've learned here 
is the very words that the angels said to the women when they came to the tomb that fateful Sunday morning. They were looking for a body. They wanted to finish the embalming process that they'd begun on Friday. And these words would change the course of human history. Oh, you're looking for Jesus, they said? He is not here, for he is risen. Amen. Beautiful. All right, second point. Jared, what, 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 what's our second point? Take away from Acts. Number one's the resurrection. What's number two? Okay, as you see on the screen, our greatest need. And we need to remember the significance that the resurrection had on the, the 12 disciples of, of Jesus, and especially the 11 um, that sort of made it through the whole crucifixion um, event. Forget the great disappointment of 1844. The disappointment that the disciples went, went through would have been even greater. They had this, this leader who they thought was going to deliver them from the Romans, and they'd been following him for, for um, three and a half years, and they were just ready to, to see what was going to happen, happen next. Mm. And the very next thing that takes place is their leader is, is tortured and nailed to a tree and, and, and dies, mm. is murdered. And so you just got to think that at this stage, the, the disciples were disappointed, they were discouraged, and they were, would have been completely confused. Why did this happen? What, how do we explain this? Mm. And then as Dave was saying the next thing that happens is the resurrection, which would have absolutely transformed um, everything for them. And they're there, they, this person that they thought had been cured upon the cross, and they thought it was, all, um, it was all for nothing, suddenly they start seeing the cross in completely different eyes. Mm. And it goes from being a, something of a failure to a victory. The cross is no longer a bad thing, and it and it's, becomes the greatest thing that they've ever experienced and ever um, the greatest thing in their entire experience. And, and when Jesus is risen from the dead, he gathers together his, his disciples. And, and at that moment, I can just imagine like the light bulbs going off in their head. Yeah. And they're thinking, and they're just reasoning through, and they're starting to grasp the beauty of the gospel. And they're starting to grasp just how infinite God's love is and just how um, much Jesus has done for them. And Jesus gathers them together and he says, guys, I've got a mission for you. Hmm. He says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I can imagine, after they've just seen the resurrected Christ, that there would have been some sort of desire within them just sort of welling up. And they would have been so eager just to race out and start attacking this mission that God had given them. And it's at this point that we see that Jesus orders them to do something. Okay, he gives them a very strong command. Yeah. And, and open up in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. So in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them, now just take note of the, the force of the language here, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to what? To wait. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So just imagine these, these disciples that have gone from complete disappointment to now just um, overflowing with excitement and ready to go and, and be witnesses like God is, that Jesus has asked them to be. God's, Jesus says to them, he, in fact, he orders them, stop and wait for the promise that I'm going to send. And when we go down to verse 14, it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to what? 
prayer. To prayer. That is how they waited. They got together in one accord and they devoted themselves to prayer. Now, what a contrast this is from only a number of days before where Jesus had gathered them together in a garden of Gethsemane and he says, wait here and pray. Hmm. And repeatedly Jesus comes back and instead of praying, they're, they're sleeping. sleeping. Okay? And now we see that instead of doing this, they do something different and they gather together in one accord and they are devoting themselves entirely to prayer. And when we come to chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. I can't imagine this like hurricane, tornado-forced um, sound that just races into the building. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled, completely immersed with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Now, what was the result of this? The result is the book of Acts. Hmm. And as I contemplate these verses, I want to share with you the point which is up on the, the screen. And that is, our greatest need is prayer. Amen. Because our greatest need is the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yes. So how are we going to apply this to our situation here in Kingscliff this coming year? Well, firstly, um, we have a lot of plans, we have a lot of visions, we have new structures, we have growth groups, we have ministry teams that are going to be developed. But when we look at all these things, when I, and I read through Acts chapter 1 and 2, I realize that none of these things are going to be successful just because they're good plans and good structures and good visions. Mm. These things will only be successful because the Holy Spirit Amen. is behind them and empowering us to live them out. Now, a very practical way that we are, we are trying to be a church um, of prayer is with our growth groups. Not all of you will realize this yet, but when we sat down with our leaders and we gave them a list of expectations, the number one expectations that, there is, that they have as a leader of a growth group is to be praying for each person, each member of their group daily. Yeah. Amen. Now, all those hands that we, you saw up there, that means that all of those people are being prayed for on a daily basis. And in addition, we have, the leaders have small group coaches which are overseeing them. And guess what their number one expectation is? To be praying for each one of their leaders on a daily basis. Because we have, we have a desire to make prayer within the very DNA of the structure and the vision of our church. Yes. So, our greatest need is prayer because our greatest need is the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. All right, great job, Jared. All right, Daniel, number three, where are we at? Acts chapter two. Obviously, after the rubber band's been pulled back, just as Jared has mentioned, we have now really the birth of the Christian church. And I think that when I preached on Acts two, I remember asking you guys the question. You may remember I asked, what is what? Church. And you remember that question? And I think that when we look at this text, the text that we've been looking at this whole series, This here is the description of the church. It begs the question, what is church? And I want to turn to Acts 2 very quickly with you and just look at verse 42 to verse 47. This is a challenging text. It's an empowering text. But in 42 to 47, here we have the description, the role of the early church. And this is the challenge today. We don't just want to breeze through theology. We want to ask, are we living out the book of Acts? Amen? 42 says... And they devoted themselves to the apostles, what? 
teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. prayer. Again, there's that prayer. So as the Holy Spirit has come upon them, as they have realized that this Christ who they had rejected, this Christ who they had spent time around, who they had ran away from, not only had forgiven them, but wants to use them for the work that mm. broke them. Yes. Now God can use them. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And what we find the early church doing is it was a community. Church was not a building. Amen. Church was you and I. Church was people. And I want to look here as we go through. We get to get a little insight into the things that they were doing. Were they a people who met only once a week? What do you guys think? Mm. Let's have a look. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They studied the scriptures together. And to the fellowship. They fellowshiped together. They knew about each other's life. They were in each other's life. And the breaking of bread and of prayer. And notice verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in what? In common. common. Doesn't mean they all liked the same type of food. They had all things in common. They knew what God was calling them to do. Amen? Here's the question I have for you. Do you know what God has called you to do? Are we unified in mission? Are we unified in spirit? Are we unified in prayer? That should be a challenging question for us today. The early church were unified in their mission, in their faith, and in their willingness and devotion to God. Notice verse 45. Were they just meeting once a week? And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Amen? Ask yourself this question. Is that the church that you're a part of today? Hmm. Because when I say church, who am I talking about? You, me, us. Are we living out the church of the book of Acts? Are we fulfilling the commission that God has called us to do? You know, one thing we see here as well, and notice verse 46, day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their what? Houses. In their houses or in their homes. So what we see in the early church is a vibrant, moving church that was committed to replicating what they had seen Jesus do for three and a half years. Jesus would not walk past someone in need. Hmm. Jesus would not walk past someone who needed help. When there was a need, Jesus was there. Jesus impacted the lives of people around him. And he says, I am going. Now I give this job to you. What does it mean to be into the church? What does it mean to be a church? Here is our description. And here in Kingscliff, as we look at these words, we are challenged and we are praying to say, God, make us like the early church. Help us to move in the direction of the book of Acts. As we've started our small groups, we meet house to house. Amen? We are, and as you have a home group, you have fellowship, we have breaking of bread, we, we eat together. But here's the challenge I have for you, as awesome as this church is, and I can tell you right now, I've been in a lot of churches, and I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that is intentional about small groups, that is intentional about socials, that is intentional about creating a fellowship and a unity with the church. I want to challenge you on this one thing. Is that enough? Is that enough? What do you guys think? Here's the challenge. When you come to a worship service on a Saturday, I'm not going to use the word church because what's that? That's you and I. How intentional are you about serving? 
How intentional about you, are you about asking home, someone home for lunch? Mm. How intentional are you about looking at someone you haven't met and saying, happy Sabbath? Where do you come from? How are you? Do you want to sit with me? That's a challenge I leave with you because as awesome as we are and as, as amazing as God is blessing us and moving us forward, the challenge I ask myself is this. Am I as an individual living out these things? That's the challenge that God has given us. And we'll look at the next slide. If we pl- replace the I with we, illness becomes what? Wellness. The heart of the church is not about I, it's about we. Yes. It's when I take my focus upon what myself, and when I come here, I don't go, what can I get out of today, but what can I give to others? Amen? That's church. And mm. when we all live like that, when you serve, you receive. Amen? Beautiful. Amen. Thanks, Dan. Excellent. Our fourth point, and we saw that Luke really, in many ways, in terms of the basic literary structure of the book of Acts, we see these twin themes of growth coupled with resistance. And so we've learned from the book of Acts that exist, resistance is not something to be, uh, that we shouldn't expect that it wouldn't come. It's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to cower in the face of. But we have seen whether it's resistance from inside of the church itself. Peter met resistance from within his own Jewish community. Paul later met resistance from within his own community. To say nothing of the resistance outside of the community from the Romans or others. We've seen Paul go into cities like Lystra and Derby, where he would initially be welcomed and treated as a god and then stoned shortly thereafter. Resistance is not something that we should say, oh, no, that's not going to happen to us. If we start doing things right here in the Kingscliff Church, all will go well. The community will flock to us and everything will be great. No, the book of Acts has been structured on this basic literary principle of growth and opposition. Do we see the gospel growing? Yes, Luke records again and again. He says there were 3,000 baptized shortly thereafter in Acts 4. There were 4,000. Later there were 5,000. It even says that many of the priests became obedient to the faith. But all along, as Luke is telling the story of growth, as he's telling the story of multiplying and of expansion, he tells these stories of resistance, whether it's from a magician here on an island, or it's from a Roman ruler here, or it's from, uh, often from the church community itself, the Jewish community, the non, uh, those that hadn't put their faith in Christ as Messiah. And so as we're beginning, as we're thinking, as we're plotting, as we're strategizing, I was mentioning to Jared, not in the too distant past, that it's remarkable how easygoing the Kingscliff Church is. I love that. It's one of my favorite things about the church. I consider myself to be a fairly easygoing person and to be a member of a church that says, yeah, let's try that out. If it doesn't work, we'll, we'll revisit it. I, I love the fact that in this church, there's just not these big egos and people that have these big agendas and they've carved out their little corner of the church or their little corner of influence or leadership. I don't sense that. We recently had nominating committee and the spirit of nominating committee was just... It was powerful. It was beautiful. It was, I would dare say, spiritual. We had a a music uh, committee meeting, a music leaders meeting, and a worship coordinators meeting just this last week, and it was a beautiful meeting, and I was so thankful that in the meeting, somebody spoke up. I think it was Paul. Paul Fua spoke up and said, man, I love the spirit of this meeting. Well, what a great thing. Let's sit down and let's talk about how to minister to our church without, you know, arguing and fussing and fighting, and it's not about anything. I love, love, love that about the church. Well, let me tell you this. If this church is going to be unified and this church is going to be committed and this church is going to be passionate about the Great Commission, resistance not may come, 
If the book of Acts is an indicator, resistance, what did I say? Will, will come. come. So resistance is to be expected, and we've seen that in the book of Acts over and over again. In fact, when we come here to Acts chapter 28, right at the end of this particular sermon, we're going to see that, that even as Paul approaches the very gates of Caesar, as he approaches the gates of Rome, resistance is poised to thwart the whole thing, and yet the Spirit comes through yet again. And so resistance is to be expected, not to be cowered in the face of, not to be run from. What did Paul say? Paul, who knew this good and well, he had written years before in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. What's that next word there? Will suffer persecution. Not might, not perhaps, not some sort of conjecture. He says, no, all who desire to live godly in... This is what's going to happen. And so resistance will come. And if we don't get resistance from those that are flesh and blood, what did Paul also say? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Because even if we're not getting resistance from those that share our humanity, resistance can come in spiritual ways and from demonic forces. And if the New Testament is to be seen and understood and believed, we should expect resistance. But I want to leave you with this. Scripture says... That greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And if God be for us, do you know how this verse ends? Romans chapter 8 verse 31, do you know how that one ends? It says, if God be for us, the rhetorical question, what? Who can be against us? Expect resistance. Next one. Jared. Point number five. As we go through the book of Acts and we see these, these great victories, these great achievements, we see people enduring all sorts of incredible opposition and resistance, there's a bit of a temptation to think, oh, these people are, they're kind of like almost superheroes. Mm. These people that, they're, they're the elite, the professionals, those who have been trained and educated and, and it's somehow, so often we're tempted to think that those people are somehow completely different or other than, than, than ourselves. But I want to take your minds back to Acts chapter 4. Now in Acts chapter 4, we see the apostles um, encountering their first major um, resistance with the Jewish leaders. And remember, these are the same Jewish, Jewish leaders that, that um, opposed Jesus Christ, and they arrested him, and they falsely accused him, and they organized for him to be put on a cross. And in Acts chapter 4, we see, um, we see Peter and, and James... And they go down to, well, this is in Acts chapter 3. They go to the temple and they heal this, this lame man. And as a result of that, there's a huge amount of excitement that starts spreading throughout Jerusalem. Mm. And this gets back to the, to the Jewish leaders, the, the elders and the, the high priest and, and the scribes and the Pharisees. And they think, we need to put a stop to this. This, this, um, this contagious, almost like a contagious disease that began with... With, with, with Jesus, which is what they might have been thinking, is now spreading and spreading, and we need to put a stop to this. But their minds probably went back to, back to in the, um, the Garden of Gethsemane, as we were talking about earlier, when they came up to the apostles, and what did the apostles do in the Garden of Gethsemane? Fell asleep. They fell asleep. And then when, um, a little bit later on, when things got a bit confusing and Jesus got arrested and was being taken off, they all fled. They fled. They fled off in this direction, off in that direction. And Peter, he thought he was strong. He followed along in their, in, in their path. But eventually, when he got put on, on the spot and they said, are you one of them? 
Are you one of Christ's followers? Surely you are. He said, I swear, I, I don't know the person. And he denied Jesus three times. Now, when we get to this spot in Acts chapter 4, when the Pharisees were, um, they were hearing of this commotion and, and this, this news about, this, about Jesus is, is continuing and there's some healing taking place, they go, we're going to stop this. So they send some people down, they grab Peter and they grab James and they drag them back before all the Jewish leaders, just like what Jesus was dragged before as well. And I'm sure they were thinking, oh, this, these guys are going to be pushovers. A few threats, a few, um, we'll, we'll threaten them with imprisonment, with, with, um, with, taught, with um, beatings, and it won't take much. These guys will give up. And so what they do, they, they, they put Peter on the spot, and they get him to give his defense. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, And when they had set them in the, in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Mm. In other words, Peter, are you associated with Jesus? There you go. And you remember what happened last time. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said mm. to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, mm. Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing bef- um, before you well. Do we see a transformed Peter here? Yeah. Amen. And note their response in verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Mm. Here we see from the testimony of, of the opposition, we see that they looked down at them, and as we see on the screen, they saw uneducated, untrained men. God uses the ordinary to ex- achieve the extraordinary. You remember, as I said at the beginning, as we go through the book of Acts, there's a temptation to think, oh, these are kind of superheroes. These are um, elite. These are the people that are quite different to us. But as we see, they're just ordinary, uneducated people. But you might be thinking, oh, but that's Peter and, and, and James. Sure, they didn't have a formal education, but they're the closest ones to Jesus. They went around with Jesus for three and a half years. Surely they had some sort of an advantage. What about the rest of the early church? What about all those 3,000 Christians that were converted on the day of Pentecost? What about the real ordinary people? Well, let me again remind you of Acts chapter 8. In the beginning of Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, and Samaria, except who? Hmm. The apostles. You remember their mission? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here we see stage two of that taking place. These people are scattered to Judea and Samaria. And what are they doing? In verse four, it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The 3,000 new members to the church and the church 
whatever size it was by the time this church, this persecution broke out, they are all scattered. But who was not scattered? The apostles. They were all scattered abroad except the apostles. These are the ordinary, everyday people, and they are the ones who go and fulfill, start fulfilling stage two of the Great Commission. As we can see, God uses the ordinary to achieve the extraordinary. So how are we going to apply this in our local church? Well, one of the new things that we started last year is our Bible-working ministry team. Okay? Often we think, oh, if someone wants to do Bible studies, they need to go and talk to the pastor. And he's the one who's been trained, they've gone through years of education, and they're the ones who are the ones who um, are able to do those sorts of things. Well, as we see in the book of Acts, God has called every member of his church to be a missionary of his church. And so that's why we are, we are getting things in place, such as the Bible working ministry, ministry team, the growth groups that are, which are drawing from all sorts of people within our church, because we want to be a church where every member is involved in some kind of ministry. We want to switch it upside down so, so it's not the church members who are supporting the ministers, the, the pastors in ministry, but we want to see our role as supporting you guys mm. in ministry. Amen. Amen. You guys are the missionaries and the ministers of our church. Amen. Beautiful. Thanks, Jared. Good stuff. All right, Daniel, the church is growing, and is everything go well when the church grows fast? Uh, the book of Acts is completely smooth all the way through. Is that right? I love this verse, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. You know, as the church is progressing, man, there's just thousands being converted. Can you imagine? Just, just, just pause for a second. Imagine if we all just got up, and we just launched into this Kingscliff Twee community, and we had 5,000 people join the church next week. Would you be happy? Would that create some organizational challenges? Yeah. So here we have in Acts chapter 6, the church is growing. Thousands are coming to the faith. The church is moving forward, and then boom, a snare. Their number was multiplying, and there arose a what? A complaint. A complaint. And we have the Hellenists, of course, you know, arguing that there was some sort of racial issue, and they're not being looked after. And, of course, the church had to pause and deal with the snare that they were going through. And we find this not just here in Acts 6, but I mean, you, especially in Acts 15. I mean, they all yeah. had to call their Jerusalem council yeah. to deal with the great theological issue of how do we deal with all of these Gentiles coming into the church and on and on through the church. But you know, this is happens. As the church grows, as the more and more people we have, the more complexity we have. Yeah. Like any business, any organization, anything that grows, it creates problem. More people equals more problem. But for God, this is a challenge he welcomes. And yes. in the church, as the early church grew as thousands and thousands, and by the time we get to, um, towards about the mid part of the book of Acts, 100,000, around 100,000 people have joined the church just in Jerusalem alone. And we find thousands and thousands of people coming into the faith. So for the church... There were growing pains. There were issues of how to deal with stuff, how to, how to uh, organize it. Now, when I think about church itself, one of the challenges that happens to the Christian church, and you'll see this in any organization, is as they're moving, as they're empowered, as they're moving forward, just like we are, as we're planting churches, as we're developing small groups, as we're reaching our community for Christ, there will be inevitability that we will hit a snare. But here's the question. Do we halt the mission because of the snares? Hmm. Do we allow the snares to make us stop and spend three years dealing with this snare? 
No. Or do we deal with the stairs in a manner through prayer and good leadership, but we continue to keep focused and we continue to move for the great mission, the great commission of Jesus? Would you agree? And this is an important thing, and I've seen it over and over, that often not only in the corporate church, but even for yourself, maybe God has called you to do something. It's been in your mind. I'd love to start a small group. I'd love to give a Bible study. God's put that in my heart. Or I'd like to use this certain thing to share Christ. What's the snare in your life? What's come up? Is it time? Is it money? What is it? What's the snare in your life that has kept you back from fulfilling the great commission of Jesus Christ? For the early church, they were no different to you and I. We face snares every day, don't we? (laughs) You know, I mean, just this week, we sat down and talked about the church plant. As we're moving, I mean, this is, to me, the church plant is awesome. A lot of churches want to plant churches, but they get caught up in snares. Mm. I'm not sure if we've got the money. The the, the great thing, and I've got to give Dave a prop here, like, the thing with David I love is he does not let snares get in the way. He's like, we're doing it. Let's go. God will provide. And that's been a great thing for me to learn, to realize that it is God we work for, not money or anything else. Does that, do you agree? And Amen. the vision that you've got to have to keep focused on what God is doing and realizing as we look at the book of Acts that God supplied their means. God supplied everything they need as long as he called them to charge forward for him. Amen. And I challenge us as we move for this church plant, as we move with these small groups, these are big things. These create complex problems. We have more things to deal with, with, but what a privilege it is to do it in the name of Jesus. And it's up to us to step up. It's up to us to keep our eye on the prize, so to speak, yes. to keep ourselves focused on what we're here to do. And the same calling that Jesus gave to those 12 men are the same calling he gives to you today. Mm. Go ye therefore and make disciples of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Do you feel that call today? Mm. Amen. Excellent. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for the shout-out. I want to give your mustache a shout-out. Yeah. With a mustache like that, you're going to preach with authority. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we move from an area in our local Kingscliff Church here of strength, and uh, we move into an area that, that from my sort of initial diagnosis, having been here since March, that might be and probably is an area of weakness for our church here. We have a lot of strengths. We have a lot to be thankful for. We have a lot of strengths. We have great community. There's, there's things that are really happening Amen. here. But there is an area of weakness, and I think it's an area that the pastors have identified, others uh, in leadership have identified, and we're seeking to remedy it. In Acts chapter 6, as the problems arise, and as Daniel has so wonderfully articulated, they met the issues with the snare, and then they move forward. And the very next chapter is arguably the pivot point of the book of Acts. It's the fulcrum upon which the book of Acts sits, and that's the, the, the sermon of Stephen. It's the longest sermon in the whole book of Acts. It's interesting. The longest sermon isn't Peter's, and the longest sermon isn't Paul's. The longest sermon is this guy Stephen, and he shows up just long enough to preach a sermon and then gets stoned, and he hardly factors into the rest of the story. What is so significant about Stephen's sermon? Well, it's remarkable when you look, if you look at Acts chapter 7, when Stephen opens his mouth to begin to deliver the sermon. I'll just pick it up here in verse um, 1. It says, And so the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. He's going to tell his sermon now, beginning in verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And basically, Stephen's sermon amounts to a great big history lesson. A great big, what did I say, everyone? It's a history, it's a history lesson. Go read Stephen's sermon. 
It is essentially a retracing, and here's the remarkable part, not, about, not, not a history of some people that they didn't know, not a history of some tribe that lived across the valley or in some other geographical area. He tells them their own history, a history with which they should have been deeply familiar and in at least a, a, a perfunctory sense or a shallow sense they were familiar with it. But here's the remarkable thing. Even though they knew at some level, some, they had some degree of familiarity with their history, they had missed the point of their whole history. They had missed the climax of their history, which was Messiah. Now, beloved, I want to tell you something here. As far as a mild weakness goes with our church, do we know our own history, both as Christians and as Seventh-day Adventists, as we should? Now, I recognize that a great many of you here today may not be Seventh-day Adventists, and that's fine. You get a free pass on this one. But for those of you that are generational Christians or generational Adventists, your parents raised you in the Adventist church, do you have a sense of your own historical place, right? Or is this just your sort of cultural affiliation, right? You were raised a Seventh-day Adventist. Your dad was a Seventh-day Adventist. Your mom was a Seventh-day Adventist. Your mom was a Christian. Your dad was a Christian. And so you've just kind of found this comfortable place around people that eat like you eat, talk like you talk, live like you live, think like you think. And you're really happy with what's happening in your local church. And you think it's great when the pastor gets up and preaches a nice sermon and you love the worship music. But here's my question. Do you know where you are in your own history? In the unique history that makes you a Christian, do you know where you are? Do you know where you are in the unique history that makes you a Protestant? And do you know where you are in that unique and wonderful history beginning in 1863 that makes you one of the youngest and freshest and fastest growing denominations that the world has ever seen? Do you know who you are as a Seventh-day Adventist? That's part of the reason that we're studying through the Old Testament. We're spending a year to go through the Old Testament because as Jared and myself and Daniel sat down, we said, man, this church has so many strengths. Do we want to preach to the strengths or do we want to preach to the weaknesses? And I would love to see in this church, one of, the, sort of, one of my goals, and I have a lot of goals here, personal goals and, and goals in the church over the next five to ten years as, as our family is here, is to see not only the level of biblical literacy come up, but to just see the level of historical literacy and, and prophetic literacy so that the people have a sense, hey, this is who I am and this is why I'm here and this is where we're going. Because let me tell you guys something. This story has come from somewhere and it is going somewhere and that was basically Stephen's point. Stephen's point was, hey, you guys missed the plot. Don't you know that Abraham, and then he tells the story, he goes to David, he goes to Moses, and they're, tra they're tracing with him right down through the history. But somehow, in a remarkable irony, one of the great ironies of history, they missed, not wholesale, because of course all the early believers were Jews, but the, the Jewish nation largely missed the purpose and point of their own history. And today, you are a Christian. Right? Today, most of you in this place are Protestant. And today, most of you in this place are Seventh-day Adventists. And I want to know, do you know where you are in the stream of Christian history? Do you know where you are in the stream of Protestant history? And do you know where you are in the stream of your own church's history? And perhaps, before you were any of those things, you were a human. Do you know where you are in the stream of human history? Or is it going to take a Stephen to stand up and remind us of our own legacy? I love this statement from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
Ellen White said these words, We have nothing to fear for the future. And notice these words that I've italicized here. What do those words say? Except as we shall what? We have nothing to fear. The future is open before us. Vistas and triumphs and successes lie before us under the power of the Spirit and the resurrection. Ah, she says, nothing to fear for the future. Except as we shall forget. Forget what? The way the Lord has led us and His teaching in our past. What is it? History. Friends, I want to tell you something. You are a part of a movement. You're a part of a Christian movement. You're a part of a Protestant movement. And you are a part of a prophetic movement that God has called into existence. And I want you to know your own history. Because this story has come from somewhere. And i got good news for you. This story is going somewhere. All right, Jared. Number eight. For number eight, I want to take your minds back to the conversion of Saul, also known as Paul. Now, in the beginning of the book of Acts, we see that Saul, or Paul, is probably one of the number one enemies of the Christian church. And when we go to the second half of the book, we see Paul is probably one of the the greatest heroes of the Christian church. And it makes me think, wow, that's 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 a pretty big transformation right there, from greatest enemy to one of the greatest heroes. What was it that made this kind of a dramatic transformation in Paul's life? I'd like to suggest to you that what it was, was being surprised and being confronted by the unconditional love of Jesus. Yes. Let's go to the first time Paul experienced such a thing. The end of the story that David was just talking about, the story of Stephen, we get down to verse 58. And it says, then they, so Acts chapter 7, verse 58, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named who? Stephen. Saul. Oh, Saul, sorry. <laughs> I, I was paying attention. A young man named Saul. So here we see Saul as an enemy of, of the church, and he's the one who's approving the execution, the, the stoning of, of Stephen. Now, the next thing that it says, in verse 59, it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What kind of impact do you think those words must have had upon the heart of Saul? As he is there... And he is wishing that upon um, Stephen the destruction of his life. Stephen looks back with him without any sort of revengeful spirit or any sort of hatred, but only with this surprising, unconditional love, Mm. looks back at at Saul and says, in in a prayer says, do not hold this sin against him. I imagine that that, that scene must have haunted um, Saul right up until the point where he encountered the resurrected Jesus himself. When we get to Acts chapter 9, we see Paul is on his way to Damascus, still furious, um, breathing threats against the church. Um, he has these letters from the high priest going to, uh, on, his, on a mission to arrest anyone in, in Damascus and drag them back to Jerusalem um, to put them in prison and hopefully put them to death. 
And it's at that point that Jesus shows up, the resurrected Christ, with this flash of light. And Paul, um, Paul is blinded and falls to the ground. And Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Hmm. And then um, well, Saul or Paul, whichever word or name we go with, he makes his way, um, he's led, because he's, he's blind at this stage, to Damascus. And when he gets there, we see that an angel, um, that God shows up to, to a man by the name of Ananias with a special mission for him to do. And let's read what that is in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. Acts 9.15. Now remember, Ananias is from Damascus, which means he was probably there because of Paul's persecution. That's why he fled there. And secondly, Paul was on his way there to arrest him and to drag him back to Jerusalem. So Ananias would not be thinking very highly of Paul. Now, verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he, speaking of Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. What, is Je- what words did Jesus use to describe Saul here? Chosen. He is a chosen instrument of mine. Would anyone else in the early church have looked at Saul and seen a chosen instrument? Surely God looks at us in a way that is absolutely different to the way that the world does. Yes. However... Jesus didn't go himself to Saul that night and to give those words, but he enlisted the, the, um, the service of Ananias to go and deliver that message himself. Mm. Let's go to verse 17. It says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying on his, his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Yes. Suddenly, we see that Ananias has gone from being someone who sees this man as a threat, sees this man as the, the greatest enemy of the church, and he starts seeing what God sees. Yes. And he looks at him, and he speaks belief into the life Amen. of Saul. And you, I'm sure you would have remembered the line that we had when Pastor David preached on this, and that is, our success will be, or people's success will be in their belief in our belief, in them. So for Saul, his transformation was in, large, in a large part um, because he believed in Ananias, but Ananias believed in him. And we see that this is, this is a contagious thing in the book of Acts. Firstly, we see Jesus himself, he's up on the cross, and he looks out at his murderers and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That, lo- that unconditional love is contagious, and the early disciples take that on. Then we see Ananias, and we see Stephen saying the same sorts of things to, to, to Saul. Um, do not hold this sin against him. And for Ananias, brother Saul. And then we see this same sort of unconditional, light, uh, unconditional love starts to fill the heart of Paul as well. And you would remember stories such as um, in, Philippian, in, uh, the, in the Philippian... Um, the, the jail in, in Philippi, where um, Paul, is, Paul and, and Silas are in there. They've been locked up, put in the stocks after being um, beaten. And then this earthquake comes, and, and the doors fly open, the chains fall off, and they look out, and they're about to escape. But before they run away, they see the jailer, 
and they, and they see him about to take his life. And instead of seeing this as an opportunity to escape, they see this as an opportunity to surprise another person with the unconditional love of Jesus. Yes. I want to take you to some words that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. And here Paul is describing what love looks like. And he says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Yeah. Here we see that a central part of the unconditional love that, that Paul has come to know is the, the, the act of um, believing in those around you. And as he writes in, in 2 Corinthians 5.16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Amen. Because from a humanly point of view, when ev- all the other Christians looked at, at Saul, they saw an enemy, but Jesus saw a chosen instrument. So in our church... And as I look out across all of you sitting here today, I see chosen instruments. Amen. I see people that God is calling to take up the Great Commission, to take up what he said to the disciples, that you will be my witnesses and you will take this message um, to the ends of the earth. And so our challenge from, from, from the conversion and the, the story of, of, of the conversion of Paul is to start seeing, well, firstly, start seeing ourselves through God's eyes, as, as Paul started to do, and then start to see those around us through God's eyes as well. Amen. Great stuff, Jared. All right, Daniel, second to the last point. What are we talking about? Oh, Acts 17. Love it. Um, you actually got to preach on this. I was jealous. I know. That's why I love doing it. Um, as, uh, as Joe just mentioned, as we're now moving through the book of Acts, Acts 17, we wanted to add this because um, there's something very important that happens in Acts 17. And really what we find in Acts 17 is as the gospel's been going forward, for the majority of Paul's ministry, Peter's ministry, the apostles' ministry, they have been dealing with Jews, although there are Gentiles. But for the first time really in the book of Acts, Paul now confronts such a different culture, a different philosophy, a different theology. And as he moves into Athens, Paul is as far removed from Jerusalem as he could be in that time. And here it's almost like these two tsunamis, these two waves of philosophy, of idealism come together. And it's such an interesting chapter because really the question that we look at here is, how does Paul communicate the gospel to a people who have no idea about the Bible? And you see, as we look at the church, I like to think of the church in one of the ways is this, that the church is a tool of communication. Did you get that? The church is a what? Tool of communication. And what are we here to communicate to the world? Jesus Christ and the mission of salvation. So here's Paul in Acts 17. As he's come into Acts 17, he's confronted by the Athenian way of life. Culturally, it was the epicenter of philosophy. It was the place where... uh, Plato and Aristotle, this was the place where Greek philosophy was thriving, a place of idealism. It was here that people would argue about the ways of life, the logos, the origins. And as Paul got there, he dealt with a community, with a society that was so far removed from the ideas that he was used to preaching. And here's the question. How do you communicate the gospel 
to people who have no idea about it? How do you communicate the gospel to people who've never read the Bible? Now, here's the question. Let's pause. Do we face the same problem? Yeah. Do we have the same mission? So Acts 17 becomes a really good chapter for us to analyze biblical methodology or the ways that Paul communicated the gospel so that we can look at and look at the ways we can communicate the gospel to a world that for the majority of them are blinded to what the Bible has to say. Would you agree? So here we have Paul coming into Athens and 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 as he talks to the people, we have this interesting uh, verse that says that he sees that the, that the city is given wholly over to what? Idolatry. Idolatry, that's right. They're, they're just so far removed from whatever they think God is. It's so far removed. Now, just to give you a quick emphasis here, is that to the Greeks, they did not deny a God or God's plural, but to them, if the gods existed, you couldn't really know them, and they certainly weren't that interested in us. Maybe occasionally they'll throw a lightning bolt down, or there might be an earthquake, but that's really the relationship of the gods in the Greek mind. So God could not really be known. But then Paul comes along, and as he's standing there on Mars Hill, he's been asked to come up and to speak to the philosophers of Athens. And how does he begin? Does he start to quote Genesis? Mm, no. Why doesn't he do that? Because they've never read it. Does he say, Moses said, well, who's Moses? So what does Paul do? And notice Acts 17, and let's, let's look at this verse here in 28. Acts 17 and verse 28, we're just going to look at just this verse of one of the ways that Paul communicates the God that they have no idea about. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being, and as some of your own, what? Poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul stands there, and as he's looking at this people who they have an idea of Zeus and this sort of thing, he quotes the Greek poets as these Greek poets are writing to the God of Zeus. And he says, basically in a nutshell, this inscription I saw to the unknown God, this God that you, 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 just in case you missed one, this is the God I'm bringing to you. And in fact, even your own poets, and he starts quoting their poets and how they relate to the idea of what God is to them. And he picks pieces and says, look, you guys are close, but this is who God really is. He doesn't quote the Bible. He meets them where they are, not where, where he is. Did you get that? Yeah. Paul meets them where they are, not where he is. Is Paul the only one to do this? No. He is Jesus. Jesus, the greatest mind that ever walked upon the face of the earth. He's walking amongst fishermen, an agrarian culture, and he wants to communicate to them the message of salvation, the kingdom of heaven. And he looks at this agrarian culture, 5% of the Roman Empire, what percent? Could read. So most people couldn't even read. How do you communicate the gospel? The complexity of the universe, the themes of the great things of of, of Scripture. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a sheep. What is Jesus doing? Relating to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a fisherman. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. What is he doing? These are fishermen. These are farmers. Jesus himself was incredibly relatable. Jesus met the people where they were, not where he is. Mm. But don't miss this. When we meet the people where they are, we don't compromise the message. Would you agree? 
It's a very slippery slide when we start to step over and think that we'll start a nightclub to reach people, right? What does it mean to be relatable? It means to understand where people are and communicate to them where they are, the basics of the scriptures, and and move with them, not expect them to be over here and understand my theology. You know, quite often I slip and I'll be in the middle of a study. I'm saying, oh, I really like the hermeneutical principles here and the exegetical format. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? But you've got you've to talk the language of the people. Would you agree? And as we as a church move forward, as we move forward with the gospel to reach our community, the question is this. What's the language of the people? How do we communicate to them the ability or the ways to understand the kingdom of heaven? And I want to mention this one more point. For, Paul, for John, when he wrote the Gospels, we, we studied this last night in our, in our group, when John communicated his Gospel to the Asia Minor Church, to the Greeks, he began with a word. He communicated God with a word that they understood. You see, to the Greeks, logos was a word they used to kind of understand what God was. And he says, in the beginning was the what? The word. And you know what word he used for that in the Greek? Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. All through the Bible, God is relatable. And here's the question for us. When we integrate, when we talk with, when we share the love of Christ with people, are we meeting them where they are, not where we are? That's the Mm. challenge. All right, great stuff, Daniel. We now land in our tenth and final point. And there's no question, at least from my perspective, that the book of Acts has the strangest ending of any book in the New Testament, with the possible exception of Mark, but there's debate about whether or not we have the actual end of the gospel of Mark. But all the gospels sort of tie off quite nicely, right? There's the resurrection, and of course the epistles of Paul that were intentional letters, they end off really nicely. But the book of Acts, without any question, is just a strange ending. It is what you might call a bit of a cliffhanger, The last time we were together in Acts chapter 27, we followed that perilous journey sailing from Jerusalem uh, down south of Crete and then up toward Italy. And uh, Paul is now eventually arriving in a place. He arrives in Malta. We're not going to spend any time on his landing there. He's bitten by a snake and the locals receive him. And uh, he eventually arrives in Rome. And here's the remarkable thing. Paul has gone to Rome because he's appealed to Caesar. Right? He's made his appeal as a Roman citizen to Caesar, and the whole book of Acts, in many ways, climaxes with this. And yet, Luke doesn't tell you the end. The story ends with this like, pregnant moment where Paul has arrived at a house. He's under house arrest. It says that for two years he lives in this house. People are coming and going. He has a degree of freedom, and people come, and he just talks to them about Jesus. Right? Paul had been concerned that maybe word, negative word had gotten about him and his mission from the church in Jerusalem. But when he arrives, the church in Rome says, man, we haven't heard anything bad about you. In fact, we've not heard anything about you at all. And so Paul says, man, what a blank canvas. What an opportunity. And there in his little house while he's awaiting his audience before Caesar, he sits down and he begins to speak to them. Verse 24 of the last chapter of Acts says, and some were persuaded by the things that were spoken and some disbelieved. That's just the nature of it. Even if we did everything absolutely right here in Kingscliff, it doesn't mean that the whole community will believe. Some will believe and some won't. Even in Matthew chapter 28, after the resurrection of Jesus, it says that when they saw the resurrected Jesus, some believed, but some doubted. At the end of the day, the success of, of our evangelistic efforts is not in whether or not everybody believes, it's in the faithfulness with which we have executed the evangelistic task. 
It's up to somebody else if they want to believe or not believe. And Paul sits down in his home there, and you get the, the feeling that he's almost kind of at leisure. The long journey is drawing to, well, what Luke knows is a close. But as we've mentioned before, Paul was Luke's hero. And there's no way that Luke is going to tell this great story and end with the execution of Paul. That's just not going to happen, right? And so Luke leaves this pregnant pause at the book of Acts, and it's a pause that invites us to enter into the story. Verse 25 says, So when they could not agree among themselves, they departed, and afterward Paul said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. Go to this people and say, Hearing you will not hear. And you will not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. They have closed their eyes, that they should, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Verse 28, in many ways is the climax of the whole book of Acts. It says, Therefore let it be known to you that salvation, the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Remember all the way back to Acts chapter 1, where Jesus had said, You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And Luke has brought his book to a close here. And here's Paul, the greatest missionary in the first century, at the gates of the ends of the earth. And Luke wants you to know that the gospel was going to the Gentiles. And then these, two, these three final verses. When he had said these words, the Jews departed and they had a great dispute among themselves about these things that Paul was teaching about Messiah Jesus. Verse 30, Then Paul dwelt for two years in his own rented house and received everyone who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, and no one forbade him. And that's it. You look and he's like, okay, well, how does it end? Then what happens? And Luke is perfectly content in his letter to Theophilus to end it just like that. And we're going to do the same thing. In our review here, we've seen these ten points. Number one, Jesus is alive. The resurrected Christ is alive. Number two, that our greatest need is prayer because our greatest need is the Holy Spirit. It's not programs and it's not charismatic preachers, though we're happy for those. It's the Holy Spirit. Number three, we need to see, we want to create a genuine community here, right? Not an artificial community where people come in and say, Happy Sabbath, and really they're melting inside or struggling. People that are genuinely connected and in love with one another and especially with Jesus. Number four, we should expect resistance. If it's not external to us in the form of, uh, every one of us faces internal resistance, but we could expect even spiritual resistance and wickedness. We've seen that it's just ordinary people, not some super saints or superheroes, as Jared has said. Just ordinary people, people just like you and I, that really were the, the engine of the book of Acts. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem when everybody else was scattered, and it was those that were scattered that really brought the message to the world. Number six, we've talked about growing pains, that as the church grows, there are pains and difficulties and problems associated with that. The book of Acts has this sense that many of the Jews had missed the point of their own history, and many of us today need to take this lesson on the chin. Do we know who we are as Christians? Do we know where we are as Christians and as Protestants and as Seventh-day Adventists? We want to see what God sees. We want to look out at our community and see not enemies, not heathen, not pagans, not people who have no religious or spiritual interest. We want to see what Ananias saw. We want to be able to say, Brother Saul, to our community. And as uh, Dan is just so ably communicated. We need to do so in a way that communicates to the people where they're at, not where we're at. 
And finally, we have this idea that the story continues. Luke ends with a certain kind of pregnancy. There's just this moment, like, uh, what happens next? And I love the way that N.T. Wright, in his, his commentary, Acts for Everyone, closes his commentary as he's writing about the end of the book of Acts. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah and Lord, through his servants, through their journeys and their trials, through their pains and their puzzles, their sufferings and their shipwrecks, still reaching out into the future, out beyond Rome and beyond the first century, out across tracts of time and geography, still confronting men, women and children, rulers, disabled people, local authorities, artisans, governors of islands, wandering tent makers, philosophers in the marketplace, and young men nodding off on windowsills or cinema seats. Luke has brought them all before us in a dazzling display of both writing and of theology, drawing us in, reminding us once more that this is a drama in which we ourselves have been called to belong to the cast. The journey is ours. The trials and vindication are ours. The sovereign presence of Jesus is, say it with me, is ours. The story is ours to pick up and carry on. Luke's writing, like Paul's journey, has reached its end, but in his end is our beginning. Luke has told the story just this way. He wants you to, to look at the book and say, well, what happens next? And it's as if Luke, in a masterful stroke of literary genius, has turned the whole book back on you and said, that's a great question. What happens next? You decide. What is your role what part will you play? What does Acts 29 hold? What does Acts chapter 30 hold? What does Acts chapter 31 hold? Those are all chapters that were not written by Luke to Theophilus, but are being written by us today. Luke, in a stroke of, of literary expertise, turns the tables back on us and says, Kingscliff, what's your contribution? What did happen next? As the gospel has made its way not just to Rome but to Australia, to a continent that Paul would have never heard of. What's happening here with the gospel? We've been studying for six months through this amazing story. Luke's end is our beginning, and I want to make an appeal. Pastor uh, Jared and Daniel and myself, we want to make a simple appeal, and that is this. Do you want to say, with us, and I think with the Holy Spirit, that whatever else happens here in Kingscliff, whatever else happens here in this local church or whatever church uh, that you are a member of, we want our church to resemble and to imitate and to be like the apostolic church. We want those 10 points and, and more besides. We only distill down to 10. We don't want this just to be a lesson in theology, a lesson in history, a lesson in hermeneutics and study. No. We said, man, we want to believe that Jesus is alive. Man, we want to see great things happen. We want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We want to bring the gospel to our community. We want to have some of those growing pains that are associated with the Spirit of God being poured out upon a community of people. And so the appeal is this. Do you want to not only read the book of Acts, not only study the book of Acts, not only now know better the book of Acts, but do you want to live the book of Acts? If you do, I want to invite you to stand with me in an act of solidarity, an act of solidarity with the Holy Spirit and with your fellow believers. Stand to your feet in a response to Jesus, in a response to the Spirit, and say, man, how come they got to have all the fun? 
How come all the great things happened 2,000 years ago? Is, is the spirit done? Is he, is he tired? Is he lost power? Or does God want to do some really cool stuff even here, even now? Just last Sabbath, you heard Matt Murray get up right here in this very place and say that he spent 14 years in hard drugs and narcotics. And when he woke up, Jesus took it from him in a day. Can you say Amen. And then Jared stood up and said, I want to be in awe of God. I want to see that God is working. And I thought to myself, man, I'm in awe of God right now. There are programs and there are strategies and there are hospitals and there are all kinds of therapies that help people. And I don't want to diminish the significance of those things. But every now and then, God just reaches down to someone who's in darkness, who's in the the, the depths of degradation and human sin. And he just says, man, you're a brand plucked from the fire. I'm going to pull you out. Well, how many more Matt Murrays are there out there in our community? People that God just wants to reach down. And it doesn't have to be drug addiction. It could be an addiction to money. It could be an addiction to pornography. It could be an addiction to just living a life of leisure and sin. How many people are we living next door to that God just wants to reach in and say, you're a brand plucked from the fire. Boom, come and join my Acts community. Surely they're out there. Surely they are out there. So you stand with me in an act of response and in an act of solidarity and say, Jesus, we don't want to just read this stuff. All these great things that happened back then. We want to live the book of Acts. Father in heaven, the story is not over. Luke wrote it that way. There he is in his house. People coming freely and going freely. And as they come into the presence of Paul, man, Paul's presence was dangerous. Dangerous to Satan, dangerous to sin, dangerous to the opposition because the guy exuded the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit, saturated by the gospel. Father, we want to be those kinds of people. Just ordinary people, but ordinary people that are trusting to an extraordinary God. Father, make us a Spirit-filled congregation. Father, we're already almost at capacity in terms of our physical building here. But Father, we want to be beyond capacity in your spirit. We really want to see something happen in our local community here. Father, where are the young men and the young women who are out there burdened with sin, burdened with the darkness of despair of living a godless life? And Father, there are people out there that need us to speak faith into their lives. To go up to that young man, to go up to that young woman and say, Brother Saul, Sister Saul. Father, some of those people are in our own families right now. They're in our own community. They're in our own church. Father, help us to see what you see. To believe what you believe. To love what you love. Father, baptize this church in the Holy Spirit. Give us a sense of who we are where we are, not just geographically, but in the great stream of time. Father, this thing is winding up. Help us to know our history as Christians and as Protestants and as Seventh-day Adventists. Father, those that are not yet Seventh-day Adventists or Christians or Protestants, Father, bring them to the place of faith, the place of trust and confidence in you and Jesus. And Father, may we not place artificial constraints or limits on the work that you can do, even in modern times through ordinary people. We want to see great things because we serve a great God. And Father, if you will be satisfied with nothing less, why should we be satisfied with any less than what would make you happy? So Father, forgive us for our sins. Cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Take away any hindrances, the snares of which Daniel spoke earlier. And Father, free us to be a modern-day apostolic church, a 
church just like the book of Acts. Not something that we're just reading, but something that corporately and communally we are living. This is the prayer of our hearts as we stand in response to your spirit today. Let everyone say with me, amen. God bless you all. Turn to the person next to you and say, welcome to the modern church of Acts. God bless you all. Happy Sabbath.